So this evening, I would like to continue on a little from what uh, I started uh, the first night. And there I talked about how one of the framework which was uh, very important in the sound tradition was the framework of the three trainings of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And I'd like to look at this in different way tonight. Also, for the talks during this week, uh, since we, this is a sound retreat, of course, but also we have uh, the students from the two-year body college a secular a Dharma course. And so there are 17 of them on 50 people. And so they are more studying, in a way, the connection between the early Pali text and modernity. And so in a way, one of the themes I want to cover a little, which also interests me anyway, is in a way what is a place of song within the Buddhist tradition. What is a connection, if any, between the song tradition and the early text with the different framework you might find? And so this is something I will do a little bit, will be to look a little bit at the, you could say, the modern mindfulness or modern insight movement, but also a little bit at some of the framework of the early text and the connection with, uh, and the, also the idea, what interests me is what the idea each also have of each other. I find that also interesting because some of you come from a Zen, Son, Chan background. Some of you come from a Vipassana, inside Theravada background. And what I realized when I was in Korea is that they had very strong idea, identity about themselves, but generally also in connection to others. And then if you meet the Theravada insight of Vipassana, they too have very strong idea about <laughs> what's what. And also what's what in terms of practice, what's what in terms of framework. And so this is something I want to look at in a way this is a sound retreat, but it is true. It is not a 100% traditional sound retreat. But even then, what is fascinating to me is last year, I went to do a sound retreat in Korea with a sound master. But what is interesting there is that the way he teach sound is actually considered a little weird. <laughs> so for me, this was fascinating to see even within the song tradition in Korea, you have actually different people might be using the question in a different way or might having a very different framework. And what he did for the five days we were together, I thought was fascinating. Uh, because it really was sound to, I mean, the bare board, you could not have less than what he suggested. It was fascinating what he really kind of, everything went 
and you just had the question he wanted you to ask, regardless of anything else. So you could have talked, people try to talk about wisdom, about compassion, he said, forget it, the question. So nothing else, you know, it was, it was interesting. Kind of, I could see what he was trying to do, actually. So I thought he was a bit <laughs> kind of limited in some way and left people with maybe not such a framework because my teacher was a little different uh, in that framework is that he really insisted again and again that the three trainings were as important each of them was important. And he kept saying it's like a tripod that they have a cooking pot on top of. You know, if you just have two legs or one leg, you don't get a tripod and you can't cook on it. And it's the same, because in a way, sun, of course, chants then give the impression, meditation, this is what it's about. And we might, you might get this impression, at the end of the day, your leg ache, and you know, you think, well, but it's very important to see, to see all the sitting and the walking is within this framework of ethics, meditation, and wisdom, which you can actually directly uh, put on the framework of early Buddhism of the eight, eight noble path, the eightfold path. So some of the Eightfold path is in the ethics, some of it is in meditation, and some of it is in the wisdom. So it kind of totally, in a way, is upon it, but reduced to these three elements, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And if one is more familiar, in a way, with the Vipassana inside tradition, one of the questions I get regularly asked is where is a compassion meditation? Where is a loving kindness meditation? None. You don't get it. Like, sound meditation, what is this? Then if you're lucky, you get a bit of breath, and if you're even luckier, you get a little of listening. But that's it, you know. That's, that's uh, the framework. And so you might think, all right, what does it mean? Does it mean they're not interested in loving kindness? Does it mean that their awakening is not connected to compassion? Well, actually what it means is that actually they put it in a different category in terms of practice. That actually they put the compassion and the loving kindness in the cultivation of ethics. Because they have this text, which has, then you could say, well, you know, there you have 49 <laughs> precepts which are based on compassion. So in a way, uh, and they recite this precept regularly to remind them of what they aspire to, what they intend to do. And a lot of them are very practical about if don't be angry and receive, be forgive people who ask for forgiveness. Or they might be, you know, do not beat an inanimate object. Or do not put fire to field 
so that you don't kill the insect at certain time. So actually, it's interesting because they're very practical. And you can really see in a way the difference it makes to the atmosphere of the temple, to the way they look at things. Even the way they have this forgiveness uh, practice. Like if you make a mistake, the only thing you need to do is go to somebody a little higher up, say you make a mistake, you bow three times, and this is it. It's forgiven, but also it's forgotten. Because I think in our modern life, generally we forgive, but we don't forget. And so generally we serve it again. And to me, this is kind of one of the greatest lessons I learned there, actually, was to see them in action with this practice. I thought it was so interesting that, you know, the... Korean, they would do it, and this is it. And us Westerners, when somebody said, oh, you made a mistake, and we say, well, you know, this happened and that happened, and they kind of, and the Korean, well, like, I mean, why are they making this complicated? Can they bow three times? And, but of course, you bow, which is a acknowledgement that, yes, I recognize I made the mistake, and I don't intend to do it again. It's not like you do three bar and then I'm going to do again and then three. no 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 the idea <laughs> is that it's a learning process that actually you recognize you made a mistake you know you might have harmed somebody or whatever it was or misunderstood or whatever it was and then the bowing element is the fact that you recognize that and also the intention I intend not to do it again I intend to learn from my mistake, and that was a way, in a way it was taken, it was received. So you would say actually that in that tradition, the Son tradition, the ethics, the compassion is really in the ethical framework. And the ethical framework being in the fact that how do I relate to the world? How do I relate to inanimate objects? How do I relate to animals? How do I relate to my work? Etc., etc. So it's kind of really looking at that. Ethics is about relationship and really about bringing compassion, loving kindness to the relationship. But then what is interesting is that generally the son people think they're much more compassionate than everybody else, even if people do lots of loving-kindness meditation. And that is because they have this great vow. I mean, their whole framework of practice of everything, which is also part of the ethics, is they have this great vow. And they recite it all the time. Sentient being are numberless. I vow to save them. So in a way, generally that's the idea. I am practicing not just for myself, but I am practicing for the benefit of everybody else. But then comes a little kind of one of the subject of this evening is what I call direct and indirect. Because I think there is in a way, their intention. I think to me, the practice 
of the quality of loving kindness, of compassion in the Vipassana tradition, and this idea of the great vow to save all beings. I mean, I think it's great as an intention, but is it more than an intention? Because this is a thing about ethics. Is it just more an intention? And then it's a little bit, you could say, partly about restraint. My intention is not to harm. So then I can endeavor not to harm. Or is it more than that? Is it that not only I have the intention, but I have the action in body, speech, and mind? That actually, I don't just have this great vow, I'm going to save everybody, but does it mean that actually you are kind to every life you encounter, yourself included? I mean, you could be doing lots of loving kindness and compassion meditation, and it might hopefully make you feel really good, but then, are you kind to your neighbor? Are you kind to your children? Are you kind to the stranger? So, in a way, you have the framework, but then the question is, how do we put this in practice? And I feel that then you have this question, this point, which is you can do it directly or you can do it indirectly. And so at that level, I think we have to see that there are very direct, obvious ways to honor the great vow and to really go out and help others. Honor the direction of loving kindness, of compassion, and act in that way in the world. But at the same time, that's what is interesting with the three trainings, that indirectly, they're going to have an effect on each other. So indirectly, each has a little taste of each other. And that's what I experienced when I was in Korea. Because when I came to Korea, I was about 22. I had never done much meditation at all. And then pff, I went and did 10 hours away, 10 hours a day for three months at a time. And what was fascinating for me is to see after nearly five months and a half, was that it worked. It had an effect. But what was I doing when I was doing the practice? The practice was just what we're going to do tomorrow, asking, what is this, what is this, what is this? And you could say, what are you going to do with that? And you might wonder that tomorrow, you know. What's the point of that? What does it do? I mean, what was uh, interesting for me that the first thing that happened is that it made me more aware. But I mean, in the sound tradition, you rarely talk about awareness. This is not something that is really used. So 
So in a way you could say, but how come there was not the concept, but you had the experience? And that's what I mean by indirect. That actually you do something, and actually through doing that, it has a certain effect. And so the effect of doing this practice, although it was not about awareness, and I was not aware of my breath or anything of that nature, and I was just, what is this, what is this, what is this? Suddenly, I became aware of my thought. I mean, you could tell me, because there was nothing else to see. That's true. Sitting 10 hours a day, uh, the only television in town is your own mind. But until that moment, I was totally, I did not see how I was thinking. I mean, I was aware I had thought, because I am a human being and I thought about things. But I was totally identified with whatever I was telling myself. There was no awareness, really, of what was the vocabulary I used, what was the content about, what was going on here. And actually, I think this is very important. I don't know if you have been sitting for two days and walking and being in silence, and you've been left a lot with your thoughts. And you might think, uh, recently I was... Um, I'm involved with a project of a scientific research project. And uh, as a sideline, I am trying it. I created it with something else. And so as a sideline, I was kind of, I'm trying it out on my sister, you know, to see, does she get it? Like, you know, like I'm trying out with other people who really seem to be getting it. But we are there, we explain it and everything, and I want to see what we have concocted if you just give it to kind of, you know, the person in the street. Are they going to make any sense of it? So she's never done meditation. We never have discussed meditation together, ever. And so I gave her this little exercise, and I give her this little kind of, you know, seven minutes uh, breath meditation, thing of that nature, we will, you know, like every 30 seconds I say something, so it keeps them occupied, her and her friend. And what does she say to me? That's what I thought was fascinating, because that's maybe you do the same. She said to me, I cannot empty my mind. So the first thing she talks to me about is emptiness, you know? And I never mention anything of that nature. And I said, well, that's not the point. You're not trying to empty your mind. In, in, in French, it sounds better, even better, because le vide, <laughs> like true emptiness, le vide. And I said, no, this is not about le vide. So, you know, you're not trying to be an empty tin. You're not trying to be an empty hole. Because in a way, part of this whole project is, what am I thinking? How am I thinking it? And are my thoughts in connection with my intention? I mean, if I am a sound practitioner, I am doing this for the sake of everybody else. 
So you could ask the question, are my thoughts about everybody else or are they about me? Because that would kind of maybe do something about that. And if all my intention is to be loving and compassionate, are my thoughts loving and compassionate or not? So in a way, what I thought was very interesting in that moment where I thought my thought, I saw my thought, and what I was thinking, and I was thinking about me. But like, heavy duty me. I would say 95%, me. And what is fascinating is that actually, over time, we can see that there is two main levels of thought through the meditation. That actually, I would say, there is a functional level of thought. Planning, reflecting, judging, etc., which is just function of the mind. And then there is another level of thought which is, look at me, I am here, I exist. What do I think about me? What do others think about me? What do I think other people think about me? Etc., etc. We can go into lots of these loops. But we exist. We have this experience of this flow of condition. I mean, do we have to think about it all the time? I mean, if we make a big mistake, we might want to think about it. What did I do? How did I do it? But otherwise, in a way, why do we need all that selfing? And I think in a way, what happened that day was like a little opening within that selfing that we're generally not aware of and also we don't need. And so in a way, if that goes, we have more space. I would say we even have more energy, we even have more creativity. And then the other thing which happened was that going about my day, I had a surprisingly compassionate moment. But you see, up to that moment, I thought I was incredibly compassionate, but in the abstract. Not that I had done anything incredibly compassionate at all. But I had this feeling, I want to save the world, I want to help everybody, etc., etc. But then I had the moment where actually I stopped thinking about myself and I thought about the other person first. And to me, that is what I would call, again, an indirect effect of the meditation, this compassion. But often we associate compassion with feeling compassionate. Personally, I would say one of the first requisites of an ethical, compassionate attitude is that we see the person, the thing for itself and not for ourselves. That I think is where really we can start to have really that genuine 
compassion, all the ways we see the person through our ideas, etc. But that moment, I really saw them for themselves and what would be good for them instead of what would be good for me. And so it showed me what I would call the indirect effect of meditation. And so, in a way, that's why I come back, that's why what I presented in the instruction yesterday, where about the anchoring and the looking deeply, the questioning. Because yes, you can cultivate something directly. You can cultivate questioning directly and it will have its own effect. You can cultivate being aware of the breath directly and it will have a little different effect. You can cultivate listening meditation directly and it will have a little different effect. So each technique, you can cultivate loving kindness, compassion directly, and each will have a little different effect. But before that specific direct effect, I feel we have first the anchoring effect and the questioning effect, which actually are both connected to ethics and to wisdom. So that anchoring, I think really what we do when we anchor and we come back to the breath, and I'm sure over the last two days, you have come back to the breath again and again, and tomorrow, hopefully, you'll come back to the question and later on, come back to the sound. And I think what is important is often we think either we have to stay with the question or we have to create this vid, this emptiness, this no thought. There is an interesting quote from the sixth Zen Patriarch where he said, no thought is to have a mind which is wide and sees everything but is not grasping at anything. So in a way, no thought, because this is a concept which is really strong in the sound tradition, no thought. And you could say the equivalent in terms of the experience could be uh, when you have a meditative experience in uh, the insight meditation, vipassana tradition. But no thought, and here that's possibly one of the differences sometimes, in the sound tradition doesn't mean that there is Nobody there. That is this kind of weird emptiness. But actually no thought means that the mind sees everywhere but sticks nowhere. So actually it's more an idea, I would say, of creativity. And that's why I talk about creative awareness. I don't think we are trying to create this weird, empty state. I'll talk more about this later on. But actually, we're trying to dissolve 
the stickiness. And then one of the ways which is going to help us to dissolve the stickiness is through the anchoring. So in a way, when we anchor, we come back again and again. And that, because what happens, what we can see, either the selfing, which is slightly automatic, either the other thought, which are slightly automatic, or our reaction to sensation, or our reaction to sound, or to everything, are slightly automatic. And so they kind of, in a way, feed themselves. So when we anchor, we actually, as I said before, come back to the whole thing, to the whole experience, to it multi-perspective, but actually more than that, we come back to the function of the organism. So we move from the habituation to the function. So we don't move to this empty hole, but we come back, we help the ability we have to think, to feel, etc., to come back to this creative functioning. So this is in a way what is happening with the anchoring, that it be with the breath, with the question, with the listening. There is that element of coming back, coming back. We've dissolved all that, I would say, self-perpetuating selfing. And then also come back to this functioning element. And then there is more space to see what's going on. That, I think, is also part of that. But then there is other aspect, which is will kind of, in a way, take us more toward tomorrow with the question, is, in a way, the context, the part in the meditation, the meditation and this type of practice. I think one has to be aware that in the Son tradition, uh, or the Zen Chan tradition, you have two main schools. And the two main schools generally don't think much about each other. So it happens everywhere, in all good families. <laughs> and so this Son school uh, in Korea is very much based on the Lin Chi Chan, which uses famous koan, these famous questions and is very much was then in slight competition with the other school, which is a Tsao Tung, and which is more what is now known as just sitting, but originally was more known as silent illumination. And I'm actually reading a book at the moment of one of the great originator of the Son one, the question one, the one we're going to do tomorrow. And very quickly, you see that he is really against the silent illumination. And you know, half of the text is about, you know, they are bad guys, you know, that makes you, you don't understand, it's bad for you, you must not just be calm, etc., etc. But I mean, generally, you always need to have a little straw man or straw woman to kind of, you know, prove you are better than the other. To me, the silent illumination technique, actually, I think, is the hardest meditation to do. Because they ask you to sit and not doing anything. This is very hard. 
And the only thing you have to do is just sit there. And that's not easy to just sit there. So in a way, in a, the anchoring is a just sitting. And the questioning, the second aspect, is actually about trying to be with whatever is there without doing anything about it. So personally, I think it's one of the hardest practice. And that's why, in a way, I uh, don't teach it because I was not trained in it, but also I think it's fairly hard to do. And I don't know if it's easier it's for you to see. Some people, it's their temperament is more fitted to silent illumination practice, and some people is more fitted uh, to do the question. I don't think there is, you know. I am not going with great, although I admire Master Dawi, I don't go for his, you know, they are bad guys here. But the element, what is important is that you can do it in many different ways, this looking deeply. You can do it in the Vipassana style, being aware of change, or you can do it in the style we'll do it tomorrow, which is asking a question repetitively. But to see this is an important part of the practice. And to me, this is why uh, my teacher was really very much focused on we needed to cultivate together the calmness and the brightness. And I think that's what we do in meditation. We try to, up to a point, to cultivate calm, anchoring, groundedness, stability. And at the same time, there is a brightness of the organism. And we try to use that brightness in a certain way. I mean, you can use the brightness of the mind to look at the changing nature of a sensation in the knee, or you can use the brightness of the mind to ask the question. But personally, I would say that too, that kind of like asking again and again, which part of the thing is about dissolving certainty, dissolving fixity. And to me, this element of the practice which you can actually associate with wisdom. Because the wisdom part, you can have the listening part, you can have the studying part, but a big part of the wisdom is about experience, clarity, experiencing for ourselves clarity. And we can experience this clarity through dissolving misperception. So a lot of this questioning, this looking deeply, in a way is about questioning misperception. So in a way, having the impression, I don't know if over the last two days, I don't know if you had a headache or if you were sleepy or if you had some pain and you thought it's going to be like that forever or at least for the whole day or for the whole week. Personally, one of the things I can guarantee is that things will change. I cannot guarantee up or down, but I can guarantee that generally they change. And so in a way, this is part of the practice here, is by actually being in silence, by in a way being together in a supportive environment, 
then it enables us to see more clearly change. But at a kind of like more micro level. Because of course we know change at the macro level of the season, of recently we have had major change in different kind of spheres. So we are aware of dramatic change at the moment. And we kind of been lulled up to recently to, oh yeah, things are nice, yeah. Some people suffer, but not me, things are nice. And now we have a few major changes, like woof, woof, woof. You know, what do I do with change? So here we look at the micro change, just change in thought, change in sensation, change in mental state, emotional state, change in the weather outside. I think the weather at the moment is amazing. You know, one moment you think, wow, it's amazing, it's sunny, and you think, wow, it's sunny again today, wow. And then it's not sunny anymore, and you think, Whoa. and you kind of question, was it sunny this morning? Because like, it doesn't look sunny anymore, how come? It's interesting that because something exists, because of the generalizing principle, you have the idea, oh, that will continue. And so in a way, with this uh, being on retreat, it's really an opportunity to be aware of change. And to me, change is really such an important part in terms of compassion. For example, change in terms of ourselves or others. To me, this is a compassionate move. Can I see that at some point I can change? Can I see that somebody else at some point can change? They might not change now, but they can change. Can I give them the opportunity that they can change? Or do I think I am always like this? I will never change. They are always like that. They will never change. To me, this is one of the most uncompassionate things. They cannot change. I cannot change. And so in a way, to me, being aware of change is totally connected with compassion. It's kind of really to see the more I see change, the more there will be compassion for myself and others, actually. And so that's one of the ideas. We're not just seeing change just as a kind of little scientific theory, but we're trying to experience change so that we can approach ourselves and others with a more flex in a more flexible way, in a more I would say creative way, in a more possible way. What was fascinating about this research I'm doing, which is going to occupy my life for the next three years. So this is what I mean, you know, once a month, at the moment, twice a month, and even while I'm here, I am getting email about what's going on. And so this is a scientific research uh, where we're going to see if uh, meditation uh, can help a senior, uh, 65 plus, who are healthy. 
to see is kind of act as prevention. And then the question is that, is it better, equal or less than not doing anything or learning English? <laughs> so, in three years' time, we'll have the possible answer. So before we started the research, we started the 9th of March, everybody was really worried about the day we were going to announce a category. We thought we were, we were going to have to manage them because some would be so, so unhappy to be in this group, in that group, and we're like, you know, we have to really kind of do lots of things. To, so our main concern was we imagined, this was very interesting, that they would be terribly unhappy about the group they would be in. So we had kind of like, you know, then comes the day we give them the envelope. And so one person is a reference point from the English, one for the do nothing, and one for meditation. So I have these 15 people come to me, and all of them are beaming like that. And they're like, ah, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I wanted to do. And so they're kind of like super enthusiastic, like more enthusiastic than us, kind of like. <laughs> and they wanted to start straight away because we thought, you know, we have to prepare them. No, 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 they wanted like, so straight away. <laughs> we had not planned to, but we did meditation and they wanted to do it. And off we go. And they keep being so enthusiastic. And it does actually make change relatively quickly. But what was interesting for me was our assumption, our fixed assumption about them. They don't know about meditation, they never done it. They're not going to like it, you know. And it was interesting how they're willing to try it out. And to me, this is in a way what change is about. That in a way, to have this kind of uh, kind, compassionate, open, oh, what's the potential there? Instead of immediately fixing yourself or others. And so in a way, that's why there are many different ways to cultivate this questioning, this looking deeply. So one of the main ones is to be aware of change. So I really encourage you, but not so much, unless you want to do it when you sit, but more throughout the day, to just notice when you start thinking, mm, I am stuck, it's fixed, and then notice 10 minutes later, an hour later, are you the same, are you different? So really trying to notice both sides, the side that fixed, and then the experience of change. That's what I think throughout the day, it's interesting time to time to notice, hmm, how do I feel now? How is the sensation? I mean, I have a, a little thing with my foot at the moment. It's been going on since some time. And it's interesting. You know, right now, if I move it a little bit, there is something. If I don't move it, sitting here, nothing. And then if I do this a little bit or not, and so I'm just kind of interested. What happens? 
it's there, it's not there, it shifts, it moves according to different things. So in a way, can we be interested in exploring change and really using the opportunity to do that? And the reason we present, because this is a sound retreat, but why do we do a sound retreat once a year? And this is the only place we do it, although we bring the sound technique in other retreat, is because we both, Stephen and I, really benefited from doing that training of just asking a question. And the reason for that is that we found, actually, if it works for you, tomorrow I'll talk more about that, but if it works for you, it's a really efficacious way to cultivate the second element. Because I think anchoring is fairly obvious. But this looking deeply, this experiential inquiry, this questioning is not always easy to do. So one easy way is change. But I think change, it's kind of, you could nearly say, is more fun if you do it throughout the day. And the questioning, is like it, it helps you to, to cultivate that in a very direct way, quite in a sustained manner. And so that's why I think you know, it can be a useful method, of course, if it suits you. And also, like I mentioned before, a method which can help us to develop this wise compassion. And so in a way to see with the three training that you can cultivate them directly or you can cultivate them indirectly. And so that in a way give us a lot of scope because in a way by cultivating ethics we actually can also cultivate anchoring. That's an interesting aspect of ethics. We can also cultivate anchoring. We can also cultivate questioning. What did I do? What happened? What was the effect of that? While we cultivate meditation, we're also in a way cultivating ethics. While we're cultivating wisdom, you could say we're also cultivating ethics. We're also cultivating meditation. So to see that in a way, they all feed into each other. And so to see that the meditation is not in a way just about the sitting, but it's also about how we relate to ourselves, to others, how in a way we learn from our experience, but learn from experience in terms of being aware of change or in a way using the question to open to what is going on. But we'll talk more about this tomorrow. So that's what uh, I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Okay, so, yes. I have a question which is a bit unrelated, but it keeps popping up in my mind. Would you mind if I ask it? Um, 
sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And, and do you have any insight into the division between North and South Korea? Oh, uh, I think <laughs> the best thing is to, is to read an history book. And then you will realize that the division between the two actually is uh, geopolitical and it was a story between Russia and America and China and what was going on in those time in the 1950s. So, you know, it's kind of like a very complicated story, the story of South Korea, because it was occupied until, uh, in a way, by the Japanese, until the Second World War. And then they got liberated from the Japanese, and then there was a Russian and Chinese were in with the North Korea, and then... There was an American in South Korea, and then by proxy, they were all playing each other, and they were trying to put one upon one another. And then seemingly, I read recently that it was because somebody thought they would try something out, and it went a little further than they thought, and then everybody kind of went poof. Uh, And then it's kind of like, demilitarized now because they are an armistice but they're not at peace so that's why it's a little complicated. The teachings that you, that you speak of are pre-Japanese occupation land? Of course, of course. I mean, the teaching I'm talking about uh, comes uh, from China and uh, Buddhism went into China in the first century. Then over time in China they develop in the sixth century what you could call the Chan Son Zen School, which went into Korea quite early on, the Zen School. I mean, Buddhism came earlier than the Zen School, and then the Zen School went, you know, sixth, seventh century, quickly went into uh, Korea also, which developed actually. What is interesting with the three different Zen School, you could say, of China, Korea, and Japan, is that each have a very... Uh, same origin, you could say, but they each have a little different cultural framework and each develop in a little different way. So something are similar with the Chinese, something are very different with the Japanese, and it's kind of geographical and also historical and also cultural. So it's quite interesting to see, because uh, I visited the three, so I live the most in Korea, and to see the the kind of the different flavor of the different uh, chants on Zen tradition according to the country you find yourself in. And so you survived the Japanese occupation quite well, the traditional Korean style teaching? Uh, yeah, because you see, the thing is, again, this is how religion is used. Uh, the Japanese used... Uh, the fact that by Zen you had, had the Meiji area, which made the monk marry, though it was already a little like that in Japan. So then all the, there was Korean monk who married and were encouraged to marry and occupied the temple. And then, after the Korean War, uh, so then the silly bit monk were very poor, and I mean, it's a lot of, we know a lot, some of them. 
And then after the Korean War, the celibate monks decided, we're going to, <laughs> to get our temples back. So they got them back with, let's say, not just kind of kind, friendly compassion, but they did. All these things are a little complicated and political, but they got them back. And then after that, the tradition just resurrected itself, you could say, after having a little. Because, they all, I mean, Buddhism was also repressed in Korea by the Confucianists for 700 years. So, uh, kind of, when you look at a tradition, you're actually looking at it within embedded. It, there is its own story which is what we talk about here. And then it's, what is it embedded in? And so for the Korean, it's embedded in their, their apogee in the tw 12th century. And then after that, they had 700 years where they were really repressed by the Confucianists who got the upper hand with the king. And this is the reason, you must wonder, why this, you know? Why not a nice ding? And actually it's because of the Confucianists. Because in a way they were living in the mountain, they had very little money, they had very little support. So everything became very small. So they had little bells, little things. So things they could really carry easily. This is a big one. Stephen wanted a big one. <laughs> but you can have smaller one and very small one. So in a way, when I went to Korea in 75, then everything was quite small, not elaborate, and very kind of unfancy. And I think because of all that. But now, they have, it's very interesting for me to see from 75 to now, the change. And so now that there are much more money, things are big. So you have big bells. And you still have this, but uh, you can see that as soon as you get, but part of this is because of that. It's actually more like, not such a spiritual thing, but more an accident of history, you could say. The, what you find yourself now. In North Korea, uh, it's extremely, what they have, I don't know if they still have it, but in uh, my days, when I was in Korea, uh, they had a North Korean Buddhist, but that was just North Korean Buddhist Association to infiltrate uh, Buddhist conferences and also to have their own communistic uh, Buddhist conferences like in Vietnam, Laos, in those days when there was more communism. Now it's a little different. So now I don't know if they still have it or not. But they would have it if it suited their purpose. But uh, can they be Buddhist openly? Unlikely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.